Welcome to the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 9 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today we'll be speaking with Carrie Vaughn, author of the best-selling Kitty Norville series about a werewolf named Kitty who runs a radio call-in show for supernatural creatures. Book 8, Kitty Goes to War, will be out this summer. Carrie also has a young adult book coming out this month called Voices of Dragons, and her short fiction will be appearing soon in some of the anthologies that George R. R. Martin has been involved with, including Warriors, Songs of Love and Death, and Wild Cards. And she also has stories in uh, my anthologies By Blood We Live and the forthcoming uh, Mad Scientist Guide to World Domination. Uh, so, you know, I first met Carrie years ago because we're both graduates of the Odyssey Writing Workshop, and uh, she and I have published our stories in a lot of the same magazines, like Realms of Fantasy and Weird Tales, uh, sometimes actually in the same exact issue. So, like, I read the first uh, Kitty Norville story when it first appeared. So it's been kind of fun to see an author's career develop like that from the very beginning. Uh, and, you know, since then, Carrie and I have both gone on to great things. So, like, now <laughs> she, she has a best-selling series, and I'm uh, hosting a podcast. Uh, so we thought it would be fun to check in with Carrie, now that she's a big star, and see how things are going. All right, so why don't we get Carrie on the phone? Hello? Hi, it's Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, this is Carrie. Okay, so uh, first of all, uh, who are some authors that you read when you were younger who made you want to be a writer yourself, and what sort of early writing did you do before breaking into print? Oh, I did a lot. Um, as far as uh, authors who influenced me, Ray Bradbury is a big one. I think I was reading Dandelion Wine, and there's this story where he goes in to buy the new shoes for the fall, and I could actually taste the sneakers. You know when you walk into a shoe store and you, you kind of get that rubbery taste from the so the new soles on mm -hmm. the back of your tongue. I could actually taste that as I was reading the story. And I wanted to know how he did that. How do you hmm. do that with just words? How can you evoke that much sensation and that much um, kind of emotion and, and, and all of that? So I wanted to learn how to do that. So that was that was Bradbury. And the other one was Robin McKinley, who's kind of two adventure books that she wrote in the 80s, The, the Blue Sword and The Hero and the Crown, uh, were the books that I read over and over and over and over again. And her characters are wonderful, and I wanted to learn how to do that. So it was a lot of wanting to just figure out how my favorite writers did what they did, and so I started writing. I've been writing since I was really young. I was lucky enough in that I had a lot of teachers who encouraged creative writing and, and assigned creative writing projects. So I wrote my first short story when I was in second grade because we were supposed to go home and write a story, and I think everyone else in the class did some of those, like, three-sentence you know, this is my dog, whatever, two sentences later, you're done. And I, I came back with, like, three pages that was this proto-feminist ripoff of the Black Stallion. I, I love the Black Stallion, but I wanted a girl horse instead of a boy horse, so I rewrote the whole thing. <laughs> and, you know, three pages of that Manila second-grade paper, and, uh, and away I went, and I kind of never slowed down. So your series character, Kitty Norville, uh, got her start on the pages of Weird Tales magazine. So how important was it to you getting those short stories published, and how did you make the transition from stories to novels? Uh, getting the short stories published was huge. That's kind of where I started. I started writing short. You know, I get asked a lot how I transitioned between short stories and novels, and my silly answer is by accident because it was just sort of a natural growth out of my development as a writer is that, you know, my stories started out really short and then they just got longer and longer and longer until one day I had written a novel without really intending to. It was just that that, that was the longest story I had written to date. 
but you know, I grew up reading short stories. My parents also read a lot of science fiction and fantasy, so they had a lot of John W. Campbell edited anthologies and collections and things, and so I read a bunch of those. So it was a form I was familiar with, and I, I was familiar with, you know, because of that, also through that, I was familiar with you know, Asimov science fiction and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and Weird Tales and all the other short story magazines out there, so it just seemed a really uh, natural way to break into the business. So that's how that started, and, and Kitty started out as a short story just because that was what I was writing at the time, and, and I wasn't sure I'd be able to write a whole novel with this one character. I, I sort of underestimated you know, how much potential that character had right from the start. When you wrote the first Kitty story, did you see it as something like a continuing character, or did you just see it as that one story at that time? You know, I think to be honest, at the time I thought maybe it would be one story, and it, it's not one story because I got a lot of encouragement, um, which was really good. I, you know, I sold the story to Weird Tales, which was a huge boost in confidence right there. I think it was only like the third story I had ever sold total. But not only that, I, Daryl Schweitzer, who was editing the magazine at the time, sent me a letter after the magazine came out that they had gotten a letter to the editor they had gotten from Gene Wall saying that he liked the story. And at that point, I had other stories planned. You know, I had so many ideas for that character, and, and you know, that character gave me a way to talk about a lot of supernatural topics and supernatural issues, just pretty much anything I wanted to talk about I could put in that character's world and be able to, to write a story about it. And I was headed in that direction, but getting that letter from Gene Wolfe saying that he liked the story was a huge boost because at that point it's like, okay, you know, mm -hmm. stamp of approval here from one of the greats. Of course I can write more stories in this now. Because it, 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 you know, at first I, I wasn't sure that it was something that anybody would like. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking I, I have a, a werewolf named Kitty, <laughs> which, you know, on the surface of it sounds ridiculous, and I just didn't think anybody would go for it. So it took kind of that boost to be able to, to encourage me to write more. Why is a werewolf named Kitty? Like, how did that come about? You know, it, it, I think if I were to dig through my hard drive and, and dig up the earliest, earliest note on that story or the earliest version of that story, which at this point it's like 12 years old, you know, um, the character's name is not Kitty, but it was one of those things, you know, it's a story about a talk radio show. It's There's a lot of humor in it, and I just decided that, Kitty would be an excellent name for that character. There's so much humor in there. And uh, I had a little voice in my head at one point that said, oh, you can't do that. That's just too ridiculous. Nobody will take you seriously. But it, it was too perfect. I couldn't not do it. And there's not really a story behind it except one of those bolts from the muse heavens. Um, <laughs> you know. uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about the world of Kitty Norville? Like, for instance, why does Kitty go to Washington and how does she raise hell? What I tell people is that on the first page of the first book, we're, we're in our world. You know, that first page is contemporary. And then things slowly start changing, and it, it slowly starts to become an alternate reality where werewolves and, and vampires are real. And Kitty is one of the first people in this world to kind of come out and declare in public that she is one of these supernatural creatures, a werewolf. And that happens in the first book. And as a result of that, in the second book, she actually gets subpoenaed to appear before the Senate. And that was a huge amount of fun because I got to send her to Washington, D.C. and explore that angle and bring in a lot of politics and make a lot of commentary and a lot of snark. When you deal with political themes in your books, what kind of response from readers do you get? The, the, the biggest comment I get is I think people really appreciate the relevancy. They appreciate uh, having something that does comment on the real world. There was one book where Kitty makes a snarky remark involving Republicans. 
And I heard about that one. It's really funny because, you know, I, I make fun of just about everybody in the books, but it was the Republicans. I got a couple of emails from people saying that they were very angry that I had been so insulting to Republicans. And, uh, and yeah, I thought that was pretty indicative that the liberal side of it can take a joke a lot better than the conservative <laughs> side, I think. And uh, we'll be hearing from the Republicans on that one. There. Yeah, I know. I know. I shouldn't say that. Um, but, yeah, it, it's. You know, I hear more about stuff like there was a book where I called it a clip instead of a magazine when I mm. had a character reloading a gun, and I, I probably got more email about that little detail than than anybody being offended by anything that I've said. Uh, do you have a background in radio at all, or like why did you decide to make uh, Kitty a radio show host? I don't have a background in radio except for listening to it a lot. I decided there were enough sort of books and stories out between you know Buffy the Vampire Slayer and other things that a lot of these kind of vampire love triangle stories that, you know, eventually they all kind of turn into these big soap operas with relationship problems and, and all the angst involved in being a, a werewolf and a vampire. And I decided Dr. Laura would not be able to handle their problems. <laughs> and if, if there really were vampires and werewolves, they would need their own talk radio show. Yeah, at a writing workshop I took, they said that the two things that people will jump all over you on if you get wrong are guns and horses. And uh, you mentioned the gun people, um, but you're sort of a horse person yourself. Uh, What do you think about the way that fiction writers generally write horses? You know, it was really interesting. When I was a kid, I I loved horse books. I read the, the entire Black Stallion series, even the really weird ones. Like there are Black Stallion books where aliens come and there are ghosts and post-apocalyptic black stallion stories. It's really strange. I read them all. You know, I read Black Beauty. I read every horse book I could get a hold of. And when I was in junior high, I started actually riding horses and taking lessons and going to horse shows and doing all of that. And I had to stop reading horse books because they were so inaccurate. Um, and that's pretty much I stopped reading horse books and went exclusively to science fiction and fantasy. So that was kind of a big inadvertent turning point there in retrospect. I love it when horses are done right. And Robin McKinley is somebody who does horses really well. I haven't actually written about horses all that much. And sometimes I wonder if it's because I'm too close to it and I know too much. And it would be one of those things I would end up writing way too much about the details. What What are some of the things that, that writers do wrong when handling horses? Well, there's the old saying that a horse is not a motorcycle. Um, <laughs> you read fantasy books where, you know, your band of hardy travelers is, riding their horses for miles and miles and miles across the landscape. And the horses never seem to eat, and they they never seem to take the saddles off, and they never seem to brush the horses, and the horses never seem to get hurt feet. You know, you can't gallop them all day, and some fantasy epics seem to forget that. They they want to have the horse just going on and on and on, and unless they're magic, they can't actually do that. Does your interest in horses extend to unicorns as well, or do you do you have a sort of antagonistic relationship with unicorns? Uh, I ask because you have the story A Hunter's Ode to His Bait, which is uh, probably the most atypical unicorn story I've ever read. Yes. I recently uh, found Doug Cohen's blog where he declares <laughs> that that's the, the most controversial story ever published in Realms of Fantasy, <laughs> which gave my heart a, a warm glow. <laughs> I actually love unicorns. I, I think they're great. I, the Last Unicorn is one of my favorite books. You know, uh, when I first heard of that story, uh, you know, I hadn't read it when it first came out in Realms, and I heard someone, uh, I read somebody talking about it, and, and they just spoiled it right away, like they explained what happened yeah. at the end. And um, usually yeah, I hate when that happens. And, and in that story, I think it's important that you shouldn't know what happens at the end. But, you know, when I saw that, I was like, wait a minute, it, what happened? <laughs> and, and I was just like, oh, my God, I have to read that. It, unicorns are really closely associated with sexuality. Nobody wants mm-hmm. to admit it. 
but they are. I mean, they're the whole thing with the unicorns, the virgins, and the, the big horn. horn <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't tell me that they're not, you know, sort of deeply embedded in the whole, you know, sexual imagery. You know, <laughs> and I just gave it all away, but that's okay. Not really. So, as someone who's written about vampires, among other things, uh, what's your take on the whole Twilight phenomenon? Uh, I have to admit that I have not read the books. I've read a lot of commentary on the books because I find it really fascinating that every generation kind of reinvents its own vampire idol phenomenon. You know, <laughs> When I was that age, we had Anne Rice, and I think my parents' generation had like the Frank Langella Dracula you know, once again, reading the commentary but not reading, having read the books, I'm I'm bothered by a lot of the implications about the strong heroine and whether or not that character is a strong heroine and, and the fact that in the books it seems like her whole being is focused on this relationship. So even disregarding the, you know, the whole vampire aspect of it, I'm very pro-active, strong, adventuring heroine. And it doesn't seem to me like there's a whole lot of adventuring going on. Uh, so it's my own bias. You know, I'm, I'm writing young adult books now. I've got my first one coming out next month. It's called Voices of Dragons. And one of my projects with that and something I really want to do is I kind of want to get back to, like, the, the young adult books I read, like Robin McKinley's Blue Sword and Hero in the Crown, where you have a main character who is out there fighting dragons and having adventures and rock climbing and rescuing herself and not really getting involved with a guy over the course of the story. Uh, you mentioned your YA novel, Voices of Dragons. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? It's an alternate history, or an alternate reality, more like, where dragons are real. They have been asleep for a long time, but at the end of World War II, they reemerge. And the Cold War happens between humanity and dragon kind, rather than between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And my main character lives near the border with the dragon territory, and uh, she gets in a lot of trouble. <laughs> she, she's uh, an adventurous young woman, and she ends up meeting a dragon. And uh, they become friends. And then they have to see if they can stop war from breaking out between their, their respective peoples. It's a contemporary fantasy with dragons and rock climbing and jet fighters um, and boyfriend trouble and all that good stuff. Okay. Um, you know, I first met you, I think, because we had both attended the Odyssey Writers' Workshop. Um, could you talk, yeah, just yeah. tell people a little, a little bit about Odyssey and kind of what impact it had on your writing? Yeah, Odyssey was great. Uh, I attended in 1998. I was at a point in my writing where I, you know, I hadn't sold anything, and I could tell that my writing wasn't getting better. You know, I, I had kind of progressed far enough and become self-aware enough that I, I looked at my writing, I, and I knew, you know, I knew it wasn't good enough, and I wasn't getting better, and I couldn't figure out how to get better. So I had an opportunity. I was going to start grad school in the fall, so I had a chance to quit my day job and take the summer off and go to one of the six-week workshops. And I looked at all three of them that year. I looked at Clarion and Clarion West and uh, Odyssey in New Hampshire. And the two things that brought me to Odyssey were that it was in New Hampshire and I'd never been to New England before, so I wanted to spend the summer in New England. And uh, Harlan Ellison was the writer-in-residence that year, which, you know, could be good, could be bad, but I figured it was my one opportunity to ever experience that Harlan Ellison workshop experience, for good or bad, right? So that's where I went, and that's what I did, and uh, it was great. It changed my writing in, in a really great way. And, uh, you know, I like to think I would have figured out some of this stuff in time, but having that intensive workshop experience, and then Jean Cavellos, who runs it, having her really pinpoint my problems. And I did have a couple of specific problems. I wasn't plotting. Um, my, my plots did not exist. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was a very silly young writer, and then I went around saying things like, well, I'm trying to write like Ray Bradbury, and his stories don't have any plot. And Jean looked at me and said, why don't you analyze some Ray Bradbury stories for plot and then get back to me? And, um, <laughs> so I did. And Ray Bradbury stories have plot. You know, I know a lot of people say that they don't, but that's because they're mistaking plot and action, and those are two different things. But so you mentioned uh, going to grad school. Uh, could you talk about that? Was that a, a good experience? Is that something you'd recommend? It, it, well, <laughs> um, it depends. Uh, I, I did not go for creative writing. This is a, a lot of people, when I say I have a master's degree, they assume it's an MFA in creative writing, and I, I don't. I have a, an MA in literature because I'm not a big fan of university creative writing programs. I had some bad experiences as an undergrad. So I went back for literature. You know, I just read a lot for two and a half years and then got a degree for it. And part of that was to see if I could handle a career in academia. And I realized after two years that I did not want a career in academia. I didn't want to go on for a PhD. <laughs> um, I, I wrote a note to myself that said the next time I think about going back to school, start a book club instead. <laughs> But, you know, I needed the, I needed the degree to, to teach me that. So, yeah, it was great. I'm glad I did it. I you know, got exposed to a lot of concepts that I wouldn't have otherwise, and it kind of gave me a depth to my reading and a way to talk about it that just the undergrad degree um, on its own wouldn't have. And it's been useful. You know, that I still kind of go back to my notes sometimes to dig out things, especially there, there's a, a professor at CU, CU Boulder, where I went, who's just brilliant when it comes to Victorian and especially popular Victorian writing, commercial Victorian writing, which is just an amazing world. And, I, you know, I took a couple of classes from her and, you know, the gothic and horror and that kind of thing, and, and especially being a genre writer. It's just great seeing how far back the roots of genre really go. What is sort of your critique of university creative writing courses? I took a creative writing class as an undergrad, and I had that experience where I came in and told the professor I wanted to write science fiction and fantasy and she told me, well, that's not real literature, and we don't do that here. And I wasn't kind of old enough or experienced at that point to be able to argue or stand up for myself or explain why she was wrong. And that's kind of been my experience you know, with just about every encounter I've had. I know that there are programs out there that are different and that do encourage genre writing, but that particular class was not very good. And so I spent kind of three or four months trying to write what this professor wanted me to write, which, you know, was kind of the early 90s literary, semi-autobiographical, angst-ridden, you know, you take all of your childhood trauma and then turn it into these very introspective stories. And, I, you know, I tried to write like that for her and was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. I wanted to get back to my unicorns and my spaceships <laughs> and dragons and magic, which was much more interesting to me. And, I, and, you know, I don't want to say I don't write for all those deep, meaningful things that she wanted us to write for, because I do. But I also write to have fun. I read to have fun. And that's the kind of stuff I want to write. I want to write stuff that gets me excited. So at the end of that class, I realized I'm not that kind of writer. I'm a genre writer. I'm proud of it and got back to writing unicorn stories. And, and it was great. So, yeah, I, I get in trouble sometimes talking down university creative writing because, you know, like I said, there are exceptions. But my advice to someone would be to, to make sure that there is somebody in the program who will support you and make sure that there is room in the program, that they're not going to dictate to you what you ought to be writing. Uh, you've been participating in George R. R. Martin's Wildcard uh, Sheer World Superhero Series. Uh, How would you yep. get involved with that, and what's uh, what's that been like? Oh, it's been fun, and I got involved because I am a fan of Wild Cards. I, I read it 
almost from the very beginning. It was my soap opera in high school. Uh, <laughs> you know, I read the books, and, and at that point, this was the late 80s, early 90s, so they were coming out a couple times a year, so there was plenty of wild cards for me to, to read and reread, and, and uh, I even tried to start a wild cards fan club at one point, and that didn't quite work out. Cause I, I just started college <laughs> at this time, which is, don't start a fan club where you're starting college at the same time. It, it doesn't work out. And then when I started kind of breaking in and publishing stories and, and going to conventions and things, I'd met Daniel Abraham, who lives in Albuquerque, and he got, he got a story in one of the anthologies, and I sort of cornered him and wanted to know how I could get in on the action and, and, and what they do. So he invited me to come down to the Bubonicon, which is the science fiction convention down there. So I did, and I got to meet all of them for the first time. I got to meet you know George R. R. Martin and Melinda Snodgrass, who edit the series, and a bunch of the other writers. And uh, basically, I... The first thing I said to them was, you know, if you're going to do any more wild cards, you should think of me, <laughs> give me a call, whatever. And for about three years after that, every time I saw them, I was asking, so how are, how are, how is wild cards? <laughs> are you doing it for wild cards book? So it was, it was pretty shameless, but I was pretty excited to get in on that. What kind of superpowers have you written about? Well, my, my two main characters that I pitched and got into the series are Earthwitch and Curveball. And Earthwitch is an Earth mover, uh, and a pretty traditional superhero power in the comic book world, but Wildcards had never had one. So she can manipulate the Earth, she can dig holes and build towers and, and do all that good stuff. And Curveball uh, has a, a kinetic power. She can throw things and detonate them on impact. It's tough. Coming up with kind of new and original superhero powers at this point is really difficult because almost everything's been done. And if it hasn't been done, there's usually a reason why. <laughs> you kind of look at it on paper and go, oh, okay, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, the way Kitty is portrayed on the covers of the books, she kind of looks like you. Is this just a coincidence, or have you ever had any contact with the artist or anything? It is pure coincidence, and I get asked that all the time, and it's so interesting. The artist is Craig White. He's got a website, and uh, is, is, does a lot of book covers, actually, and, and, and is awfully talented. And he uses a model. I have seen pictures of the model. I've actually corresponded with her and seen what she looks like. And we don't look anything alike. If you look at two <laughs> photographs of us, you know, we're both kind of thin and blonde, and that's about <laughs> it. So it's been very strange. I have a lot of people who assume that that's me on the cover, and I'm, I, I ought to be very flattered. <laughs> that's, uh, but it, it's pretty funny, though. So have you ever thought about having Kitty abandon the totally passe medium of radio and launch her own super cool podcast instead? <laughs> You know, I think she's streaming online. I think you can actually get the show on, well, you know, in her world. <laughs> Which, you know, I ought to probably do that in real life as well. Um, get some actors together and... Put on sort of a kitty radio drama, yeah. you mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Th that would be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I'll put it on my list of things to do. <laughs> John has a couple of werewolf-related romance questions he needs to ask somebody, so... <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, uh... I, I I'll, I'll let you know... <laughs> I'll let you know if anyone's ever asked them before, because I bet you, I bet you I've been asked them before. Oh, so very little I haven't been asked. So you actually get, like, questions from fans sort of along those lines? Oh, yeah, yeah, interview questions. I do quite a few blog interviews um, with, like, the romance and the urban fantasy blogs. And, and yeah, readers email questions all the time, so. Um, did you conceive Kitty from the beginning as a romance character, or is that audience just something that kind of found your work later? I did not think of it as romance, but the publisher marketed it, cross-marketed it as romance. Um, I've, I've learned a lot about the romance genre since then, and it's, you know, in, in the first place, the, the whole strong woman character 
who has love interests, it has a huge amount of crossover appeal with, with the romance readership, and that's why that, that cross-marketing happens. You know, part of that readership really wants the happily ever after, which my books don't have. And that was something I learned as I read a review that said, uh, you know, the book has no HEA. And I had to look up what HEA uh, <laughs> stood for, and it, it is happily ever after. That some people want a book, they want to know that there's going to be the happily ever after part of it. But there's a, a, also a big part of that readership that really loves the strong woman character in whatever context. And the way things are is that, you know, urban fantasy in a lot of cases and romance provide that when a lot of other kinds of fiction don't. Do you have a, a finale in mind for the Kitty series, or is it going to be going for a while yet? Yes and yes. Um, I, I do have a finale <laughs> in mind. I know what the last book looks like. I'm, I'm, dro- I'm dropping hints, and I'm, I'm, setting, I'm starting to set up things now that I'm hoping will pay off in the last book. Once I realize that this is going to be a long series and not just you know the first book or the first short story, I, I started really thinking about what makes a good series. And one of the things is having an ending. Um, I believe very strongly. Entire works ought to be judged by their endings as much as by anything else. And the thing is, I don't know when it's going to happen. I've got a contract for three more novels and a short story collection, bringing together all of the kitty short stories that have appeared in Weird Tales and Realms of Fantasy and some other places. So there's at least three more. I don't know if I'm, how many ideas I'm going to get after that, because what ends up happening is for every book I write, I get a couple of ideas that don't fit in that book. So those end up being the seeds for the next book, and so on and so on. I just started working on book nine now, and the eighth book will be out later this year. So yeah, there's going to be an ending, but I don't know when it's going to be. When you were saying how um, the the whole series can be judged by the ending, that just made me think of Battlestar Galactica. Um, have you seen that? Have you seen the new series? Yes. That's exactly what my friends were saying. Is that you know it's like and and me as well. But we watched the finale and we were just like so appalled by it that we're like, okay, this retroactively ruins the whole. Thing. <laughs> well, I, I yes, yeah, so I'm one of the people who. Halfway through the third season is when Battlestar Galactica fell apart for me. Mm. And I, I, can, I can go on and on about the reasons why. I have a lot of opinions about that. But also, there's another series that follows that same pattern. I'm, I'm an old-school X-Files fan. I loved, mm. loved, loved the X-Files. And that's another one where you got to about season five, and it became very clear that they had no idea what they were doing you know <laughs> they, they kept telling us the truth was out there and we got to a point where we're like we don't believe you anymore yeah it's like and the I truth is out there but we don't know where it is <laughs> we, idea. we left it under the sofa we can't find it now i don't know um so yeah i you know that was my favorite show for like four years and then i stopped watching entirely i can't tell you anything that happened in the last three seasons that's one reason I'm really, really worried about Lost, just because, like, it doesn't really, you know, there's not a lot about the show that makes you have any confidence that they actually do know where it was going or yeah. had any idea of where it was going when it started. And, you know, I, I have I have some faith, but I'm just, I'm so scarred by Battlestar Galactica that I uh, have trouble believing in anything yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah. But an example of a really good series, and, and what I kind of use as my Bible for writing a series, is Lois McMaster Bujold's Four Kozigan books. That you know, I've read them all and I love them all and, and I just I love that character and, and I think from reading those is what I came away with was that the core of the series is your character. You have to stay true to your character. You have to not change who they are midstream. And you have to give them goals. You have to give them goals that'll last for more than one book. You have to give them something to work for that will drive them book after book after book and you know, you have to give them rewards but you have to give them setbacks as well. And you have to make it all kind of honest. And as long as you can keep doing that, you, you can probably keep going as long as you want. You mentioned uh, how um, how Gene Wolfe praised the first Kitty story and how um, what a boost that was for you. Have you ever talked or corresponded with Gene Wolfe uh, since then? 
Yes, I, I, a little bit. You know, we, we haven't actually sat down and had a big, long conversation because it's usually the whole, we're at a convention. <laughs> I'm like, you know, Mr. Wolf, stop <laughs> in the hall. Um, but I asked him to blurb Kitty in the Midnight Hour, the book, when it came out, and he did. He gave it a very nice blurb, and so I was able to thank him for that and thank him for, for his, you know, interest, <laughs> I guess. It's daunting when you're a young new writer and you find out that people, you know, of course you send your stuff out because you want people to read it, but then you find out that people actually are reading and not just uh, readers' readers, but people, you you know, who've, who've been in the business for decades and, you know, very respected and, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's eye-opening. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know, there's a part of me that's, a little embarrassed, I guess, you know, just that I, you know, I'm not worthy. The whole <laughs> Wayne and Garth saying that's, that's kind of the reaction I have. Um, so could you just, what do you have uh, coming out soon that people should be keeping an eye out for? I have a lot coming out and I, I didn't really realize it until just recently when I sat down and wrote it all out. My young adult novel, uh, Voices of Dragons is out in March. I'm about the middle of March. Uh, the next Kitty book, uh, Kitty Goes to War will be out in I think late June, early July. And then shortly after that, I've got my first standalone fantasy novel. It's called Discord's Apple. And it's about a small Colorado town, uh, the Trojan War, and the end of the world. <laughs> I think that's the, the tagline I'm going to use on that one. And, and that's a novel I wrote a couple of years ago, you know, between novel deadlines. And I'm really happy that it's, it's going to be out in the world now because um, I've kind of been living with it for a long time, and now other people will get to live with it too. Um, and then I've got a bunch of short stories. That's one thing I'm, I'm, I've been kind of pleased about is that I'm still able to, to keep up the short story writing. You know, maybe not as much as I used to, but um, there's a George R. R. Martin and Gardner Desois edited anthology coming out in March called Warriors, and I have a story in that one. One more thing that's coming out. Uh, the current issue of Realms of Fantasy has a story of mine in it. It's called Just Another Word, and it's about Janis Joplin meeting the fairy queen. So... Yeah, other than, you know, I could, I could sit here and list out everything I've got coming out and everything I'm working on, because I'm working on a lot. I've got, uh, I am busy, and it's, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I'm pretty happy with that. Well, great. Well, uh, Carrie Vaughn, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Carrie for joining us on the show. You know, whenever I think about vampires, kind of the first... Uh, memory that comes to me is the one time when I was uh, when I was a kid you know a, a friend of mine had this house up in upstate New York and so one time a bunch of us were were driving up to it with his mom and uh, you know it's just kind of in the middle of nowhere and uh, so we're driving down these dark dirt roads and for some reason we started talking about vampires and his younger brother you know started getting really freaked out and, and started begging us to stop talking about vampires and we kind of kept talking about vampires and he kept being like, mom, make them stop <laughs> talking about vampires. And finally, you know, my, my friend, Steve, we're like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll stop talking about vampires, but I just want to tell you this one last thing. Uh, you know, a vampire can't come into your uh, home unless you invite him in. And he's like, mom. <laughs> and Steve was like, no, but that's, that's not something scary. That's something that should be comforting, right? Cause that's something that'll protect you from the vampires. And I've always, I've thought about that a lot since then. Like, what's more comforting? Is it more comforting not to know about a danger or is it more comforting to know about a danger and to also know what protections there are? Yeah, it always seems like ignorance is really bliss, you know. Um, I mean, the, that goes for a, a lot of things in life. But, uh, you know, in terms of being scared about things, I think that's definitely true. I mean, you know, think about... Uh, 
like nuclear war and whatnot, like wouldn't it be much easier to just sort of plot along in life and not know that that was ever a, a danger or, or, you know, like terrorism and, and, and anything else. It just seems like it would be, it would be, it would be definitely preferable to, to just be able to live your life without having to worry about it. I mean, I guess in the case of nuclear war, there's, there's no like little trick that you can <laughs> pull out to, to get out of being affected Wait, you by mean that. Garlic won't protect me from nuclear war. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, wouldn't you always, I don't know, it's kind of hard to imagine living in a world where you weren't afraid of anything. I mean, wouldn't you just have this sort of creeping paranoia that there was stuff out there that you ought to be afraid <laughs> of and you didn't actually know what it was? I don't know. That sounds like a science fiction story someone should write. <laughs> All right. But getting <laughs> getting back to vampires, I guess. Uh, I mean, the most uh, famous vampire, of course, is Count Dracula from Bram Stoker's novel. You know, I read this back in college. And it's it's kind of funny reading it because everything in it is so cliche now. You know, like at the beginning, there's a, a British uh, lawyer basically named Jonathan Harker. And he's sent to Transylvania to go to Count Dracula's castle, you know, to, to help him with some legal stuff. And uh, you're kind of like, no, dude, it's Count Dracula. <laughs> I mean, come on. How can you not be suspicious about this? You know, <laughs> he's a vampire. Give me a break. But it's it's just funny sometimes when you when there's something that's become so cliche and you see the original and it just seems so cliche, but of course it wasn't cliche when it was mm -hmm. new. It's kind of like that with the first Halloween movie. Everyone was telling me how great it was. And I finally went and watched it. And I was like, that's this is the most cliche horror movie I've ever seen. Uh -huh. <laughs> but it's funny with Dracula, you know, I always imagined, you know, you hear about like the Stoker awards and Bram Stoker and, you know, I didn't used to know anything about him. And I always imagined him as this kind of like, like a vampire basically just sort of cadaverous and pallid and mm -hmm. haunted eyes and stuff. You know, it's funny how you just have images of authors. And so I was kind of surprised to learn that he was actually sort of this big, red-haired, bearded Irish guy. Uh, and he was actually a manager of a theater company, um, actually the most well-known theater company uh, in England at the time. Uh, actually, this is all, all of what I'm saying is, is based on this book I read called Bram Stoker and the Man Who Was Dracula by Barbara Belford. And so her thesis in this book is that Stoker based the character of Count Dracula on kind of the star actor in his acting troupe, a guy named Henry Irving, who was sort of uh, very um, charismatic and cold at the same time. And so the story that I remember most vividly from this book is that uh, Henry Irving had just given the performance of his life. Uh, you know, he'd gotten like three standing ovations or something. And so he's on the way home in a carriage with his wife, and his wife kind of turns to him and says, you know, when are you going to give up this silly acting thing and get a real job? <laughs> and, and Henry Irving says, you know, driver, stop the coach. And he gets out and walks off into the night and never spoke to his wife again in his entire life. Huh. That's a good story, but I think I prefer to think of Bram Stoker as the cadaverous guy you described first. So I'm just going to pretend I didn't hear you say that. <laughs> All right. You know, actually, uh, you know, I read uh, Dracula when I was uh, doing a study abroad in Ireland. And uh, if you actually, in Dublin, they have a writer's museum and you can go and they have, I think it's the first edition of, of Dracula. Hmm. So that was kind of cool to see. It was actually just kind of cool to see that they had a writer's museum. Yeah. <laughs> well, they actually care about the arts in uh, Ireland. They even subsidize writers' uh, income and stuff with uh, grants and whatnot. Uh, isn't, it, isn't it true that there are no taxes on writers in Ireland? Yeah, some, and... yeah something like that. I think that's true. I think that's... Uh, I think that's why a couple of uh, well-known SF fantasy writers ended up moving there. Like uh, Anne, Anne McCaffrey, didn't I, I, I? Yeah. Somebody told me yeah, she, she, she owns like a big castle or something she in does. Ireland. She does. Yeah, doesn't... she lives in a castle. Well, it was it was like in, in Ireland, you know, like James Joyce is on like the five pound note. 
which I think, you know, you can't imagine a writer being on uh, American currency. Oh, but so Dracula, um, you know, the, at the beginning, so Jonathan Harker goes to Count Dracula's castle. And I really love that part of the book, the first about four chapters. And so I think everyone should read that. The rest of the book is a little slow in places, but those first couple chapters really grabbed me. And that's, you know, the part that film adaptations have really focused on. And so actually, like, one of the first adaptations of the story was this uh, silent film called Nosferatu. Actually, I guess they just didn't want to pay for the rights to Dracula, so they just Mm -hmm. filmed it and just changed all the names. Mm -hmm. And so um, actually Stoker's widow sued you know, for copyright infringement. And the court actually found in her favor and ordered all the prints of this movie destroyed. But it had already been distributed, so it was really impossible to destroy all the prints at that point. But, you know, (laughs) legally speaking, this classic movie shouldn't even exist. So there's actually this really good movie called Shadow of the Vampire uh, with William Defoe, where it's, it's sort of a funny take on the filming of Nosferatu. And so the premise is that the vampire in the movie is, was a real vampire in real life, and that the director made a deal with him that he could uh, eat the leading actress at the end of the filming if he would participate in the movie. But actually, you know, my favorite vampire story growing up was this. It was actually a choose-your-own-adventure book called Space Vampire. Do they still have choose-your-own-adventure books? Do kids even know what I'm talking about? Uh, I don't know if they have the official choose-your-own-adventure brand, but there's certainly other uh, other people developing that same idea i know there's something called like choose your destiny or something that i believe uh disney owns yeah okay so it's basically you know it's like in the second person and it says you do this and you do that and then every once in a while you have to make a choice and if you choose one thing you turn to a specific page and if you choose another thing you turn to a different page so you have kind of this branching tree of of narrative and and what space vampire did that was really interesting that I, i didn't see in any of the other ones that i read is that actually each branch can be a completely different reality. So like the whole background of the story can be different depending on which choices you make. And so like in a lot of them, you know, there'll be some mystery or something. But once you've gone down a couple of the paths, you basically know the contours of the mystery. Whereas in Space Vampire, you know, in some of them, the vampire is good and in some he's bad and in some he's good, but the rest of the vampires are bad. And in some he's bad, but the rest of the vampires are good. And so you can go, you can just go through it every single, you know, over and over again and, and trace down every single path. And uh, it's all, it's like reading the story for the first time. So like in one of the stories that I, I remember really vividly, it turns out that the vampires are essentially benign. And when they hear that you're from Earth, they're all excited um, because they say, oh, you know, we don't have a lot of interest in your planet, of course, but we're really interested in the fourth planet in your system, which we're hopeful uh, is a planet with an ocean of blood, like the planet that we come from. Mm-hmm. But you know by which they mean Mars, and you have to mm-hmm. explain to them that no, it's just there's just red rocks. You know, there's no <laughs> there's no ocean of blood there. But... And so they decide to create an ocean of blood on Earth by uh, <laughs> slaughtering everyone. No, I told you they're they're good in that. Uh, yeah, yeah. In that storyline, but in some they're not. I mean, so there was like one. Uh, so and in some of the and it's an illustrated book. So I mean, some of the things are really creepy. So like right near the beginning, you're essentially guarding the vampire prisoner. And he sort of mumbles something. And so you have a choice, you know, do you kind of lean closer to hear what he's saying or do you just ignore him? And if you lean closer, it turns out that his neck can kind of like telescope like a like a snake, you know, striking. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's this really disturbing illustration of this vampire with a super long neck, you know, sinking his teeth into your into your neck. 
You know, I was going to say when you're talking about uh, Shadow of the Vampire, um, I-, I haven't seen the movie, but it would be kind of funny if the story worked out where the director made this deal with the with the vampire, and, and you know, and at the end he lets her he lets him kill the you know the starlet, and then uh, but then he goes and looks at the film, and then he discovers that the vampire actually couldn't be seen on the film. <laughs> Although you know, I-, I guess the director would actually know that beforehand. Uh, you would think. I mean, I don't know what the technology was like then. If maybe they like they just had to shoot everything, and they couldn't really like look at it until much later but um you know because the vampire mythos has this sort of thing where like you know vampires can't see their reflection in a mirror and that's often been uh sort of transposed to uh oh well maybe you can't see them on film either or or you know you can't take a photograph of them etc so uh, i kind of thought that would be that would be kind of a funny twist if that's what happened but uh, i guess that's probably that's probably not what happens right no 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 well because you know the the, the background is that this is the story for why we have this movie that everyone oh, yeah, knows. Right. right. Right, right. So obviously, yeah. But so, I mean, like, what were some of your early encounters with vampires in fiction or favorite stories or whatever? Uh, I mean, I think the first, you know, the first one with me was just Dracula as well. And, uh, you know, I certainly remembered uh, the, the Gary Oldman um, Dracula movie uh, from, what was that, in the late 80s or the early 90s, something like that. That was the first movie version I saw, and uh, and then like later, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and and stuff like that. I can't say that I actually remember a lot of stuff from my childhood, you know, involving vampires. It wasn't until I was like older and uh, you know doing a lot of reading and stuff that I really got into any of it. And of course, you know, I mean, a lot of my favorites are in short fiction, not necessarily in novels. But uh, you know, like Anne Rice Interview with the Vampire and and Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Like, I mean, that's a big favorite of mine. Um, and then, and then, like a lot of uh, Tanith Lee's work, uh, you know, both in short and long form. Well, I mean, you know, I, I can't think about vampires and werewolves without thinking of, you know, like we've talked before about, you know, my, my favorite series uh, when I was in elementary school was Robert Aspirin's Myth series. Mm-hmm. And in Mything Persons, they go to a dimension where just everybody is a, either a vampire or a werewolf or something like that. Mm-hmm. And one part of that story that I've never forgotten is they're tracking this character named Vic, who's a vampire. And so they finally catch him. They sort of, they sort of surround this um, apartment complex, and he is at the roof, and he's trying to get away. And he grows bat wings out of his back and, and tries to fly away. But the currents are such that he can just sort of circle around to this apartment and, and can't really fly off. Mm-hmm. So eventually, they kind of corner him. Uh, and one of the features of this series is that a lot of times characters who you thought were really nasty turn out to not be so bad and can actually be befriended if you'll just try to understand where they're coming from. And so Skeev kind of starts talking to Vic, and it turns out that there's been a lot of misunderstandings and that Vic's not actually such a bad guy. And so uh, Skeev asks him, you know, in this, it's, it's been established that vampires can turn into to bats and into mist and, and things. And so he says, why don't you just turn into mist and, and float away? And Vic says, you know, do you know how hard it is turning into <laughs> mist? He's like, I can't even turn all the way into a bat. These wings are the best I've ever been able to do. He's like, you know, I'm actually, I'm pretty much a bust when it comes to being a vampire. I don't like blood, you know. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, you know, I mean, we talk about uh, that series a lot on the show. I, I, don't, I don't actually remember the the vampire one, uh, although I'm, I'm certain I, I must have read it. Um, as you were talking, though, I just, I remembered uh, one of the early uh, uh, examples of vampire stuff that I, I was really into. But uh, in the Marvel Comics universe, there's a character named Morbius, who's like this scientist and uh 
he somehow becomes a sort of vampire. I think he's sort of like a, a scientific vampire, I think, because I think he's like infected by some sort of disease or whatever. And, and so he, he sort of has to consume blood in order to live. But I remember there was uh, it was actually it may have been like one of the really first comics I ever really remember reading like as an adult. But there was this um, Todd McFarlane Spider-Man uh, miniseries that he was doing um, in which Spider-Man was tracking down Morbius because Morbius was um, sort of murdering a bunch of uh, uh, homeless people because he, he was trying to find a way to feed that would harm society as little as possible. So he was just sort of trying to take, you know, vagrants and stuff, people who few people would miss um, since he had no choice but to feed. And and so I always thought that was kind of an interesting an interesting twist on the, on the standard vampire myth, which, uh, you know, obviously has its roots in supernatural phenomenon. To take that and make it into a scientific thing, I always thought was cool. So I don't remember the name of it, but I ended up reading a novel later on uh, by an author named Stephen Sproul. And, and it's a it's sort of that same deal where uh, I can't remember if it was actually a, a disease or if, if they were regular vampires. But it's in a case it's a case where vampires are sort of living in society and uh, some of them, such as the protagonist, uh, try to make his way in in the world without actually murdering people. And so they had like uh, sort of blood banks or whatever that, you know, vampires would go to to be able to get their blood without having to kill people. Um, And, you know, that sort of thing has uh, certainly stuck around in the vampire mythos uh, uh, and is currently sort of there's sort of a different version of that in in the True Blood, um, you know, television series and and in the um, Charlene Harris books that inspired the series. In that series, you know, the vampires have uh, they're sort of a synthetic blood alternative called True Blood. Yeah, actually, you know, earlier when you were talking about vampires not being visible in mirrors, it was reminding me of there was a Stephen King short story called Night Flyer. Mm-hmm. And the premise is that there's a vampire and he keeps kind of a coffin of grave earth aboard a plane and constantly flies around the world so that he's so that's always night wherever he is. And so this guy is uh, tracking him. And uh, there's a scene where the hero is, is kind of in a bathroom when the vampire is has come in and the guy kind of I think he's hiding in a stall or something and he peeks out and he can see, you, can, you know, he's, he's looking into a mirror and mm-hmm. can see the urinals. And there's, it, there appears to be nobody there because you can't see the vampire in the mirrors. But he sees kind of like a stream of urine apparently mm. appear in midair and just sort of mm. splash down into the urinal. And, uh, you know, that's that's the kind of thing Stephen King would, would think about, you know, mm. is, uh, the details of uh, what exactly can you see and can't you see of a vampire in a mirror. Right. But, but no, I mean, Stephen King has a lot of really good vampire stories. I mean, there's the... Um, one for the road that you used in, in By Blood We Live. And then he also has one called Popsy that I really like mm-hmm. that actually in, in college, uh, every year they would have kind of a horror story reading uh, for Halloween at the chapel. And one year they, they read that one. And that was just like one of the best Halloween reading stories I've ever heard. Uh, so, there's, so there's this documentary I wanted to mention called Impaler <laughs> um, that uh, I couldn't get John to watch because... Uh, it doesn't meet his uh, standards for uh, <laughs> for film quality. I mean, it, it does look like a home movie, but uh, it's about this guy who claims to be a vampire who's running for public office, and he has kind of a uh, a, a sort of strange girlfriend, and they bite each other and, and drink each other's blood, and he's promising that if he gets elected, he'll impale all the people that he, he doesn't like, you know, sort of, <laughs> <laughs> sort of like, you know, like Vlad the Impaler, who was one of the inspirations for Dracula. And so that's how it starts out. And then it gets really, really weird. <laughs> it gets much, much stranger than that. I love that it gets stranger from there because, uh, you know, that's, start- that's starting from a pretty weird place. No, it is. It gets so weird. You know, like by the end, you're just like, I'm not even sure what even happens. 
<laughs> but uh, you know, if if you want to watch a, a documentary about a guy who thinks he's a vampire, I mean that kind of behavior, like I find that much more disturbing than actual vampires, or or I find it much more scary than than vampires because like I know vampires aren't real. That that kind of thing is always I always find more disturbing. Like that's one of the reasons why like, I find like post apocalyptic fiction sort of scarier than zombie fiction, even though it shares a lot of the same uh, tropes. Post-apocalyptic fiction technically is like it's like sort of usually possible. It's like yeah, yeah, the world could actually end in some sort of catastrophic war or whatever. Whereas like zombies are not going to exist ever. But and the thing with vampires, it's like okay, well yeah, vampires are sort of creepy and you know sort of scary in in principle, but I know they're not real. Whereas like people who would emulate vampires and actually like drain each other's blood and stuff like that. Well, you know, like last week we were talking about Freddy Krueger a little bit, and that's something actually I was thinking about later in connection with that, is that in a lot of ways, supernatural horror monsters can be less scary than than real-life things because they have like these weird conditions where you can protect yourself from them. Like Freddy Krueger, mm-hmm. all you have to do is not be afraid of him, mm-hmm. and he can't hurt you. Whereas like just like some crackhead with a beer bottle can <laughs> hurt you, no matter how afraid of him you are or not. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like vampires, you know, they have all these rules they have to follow and, you know, they're afraid of crosses and garlic and running water and, and on and on and on. I don't know. Is that, I mean, does that make them less scary? Oh yeah, no, I definitely think so. I mean, and I mean, that's sort of, uh, I mean, I, th- I think those are, that's sort of built in to make, make there be interesting plot complications for the author to sort of play with, you know, because when you, if you have something that's just completely unstoppable, that's not going to make for a very interesting story because then your, your protagonists are just going to get slaughtered. Well, like speaking of, you know, like rules for vampires and um, post-apocalyptic, I mean, that kind of makes me think of I Am Legend by Richard mm-hmm. Matheson, uh, which is mm-hmm. a great, great novel in which there is, you know, it's uh, the last man on earth is uh, locked himself in his house and everyone else has been turned into vampires. And so they filmed it a couple times and they keep changing them so that they're not vampires <laughs> in, yeah. the, in the movie versions. But in the, in the original novel, they're they're definitely vampires. And so... It's it's a totally it's almost like a science fiction treatment of vampires, and so there's really interesting explanations for why all the anti-vampire stuff works. So like uh, why shooting them with a metal bullet doesn't kill them, but staking them with a wooden stake does. Yeah, it's funny. I think either camp, whether it's the vampire or the zombie camp, they just want to claim it because it's such an awesome <laughs> story, you know. Well, we've talked a lot about vampires. Uh, do you have anything you want to say on the subject of werewolves? I read a new werewolf uh, novel recently uh, called Frostbite by David Wellington. Uh, And, you know, David Wellington uh, sort of became famous over his Monster Island uh, trilogy, which is about zombies. And then he wrote a he actually wrote a vampire series as well. And then now he's doing uh, then he did werewolves. And uh, now he's moving on to other things. But uh, he sort of hit he hit the three uh, big uh, horror monsters there. But uh, Frostbite was actually really, really good. So, I mean, if uh, if you're interested in into werewolves at all, I would highly recommend it. The reason it's called Frostbite is because uh, the, the, there's a werewolf in it who sort of goes out into the um, Arctic somewhere in order so that he wouldn't be able to, you know, hurt anyone when he was out there, um, you know, because he couldn't control himself, you know, once uh, because he was a, a werewolf. But then, like, you know, somebody, there's sort of a government organization that uh, decides that they want to, you know, find him and eliminate him. And so uh, that's where the sort of story comes in. But it does seem like when you have, when it comes to horror monsters, that you have sort of zombies and, and vampires way out in front and then werewolves are kind of a distant third you know back there mm-hmm. with mummies and werewolves may be on the rise here uh i mean uh due in part again to to, to stephanie meyer because i guess in the 
I don't know, uh, maybe in the second book, which, you know, they already came out with the movie for that one. There's the werewolves feature more prominently in that. And as, as the series continues, I guess the werewolves continue to feature more prominently. Um, so that will help. And then also, you know, they just, there's just this remake of the Wolfman that just came out. Although by all accounts, it's, uh, sounds like it's pretty terrible. So, um, but, but speaking of vampires and werewolves sort of, I always thought it was interesting in cases like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where although the series title sort of implies that it's very focused on vampires, that takes place in a world where like basically almost anything, anything you've heard of in mythology probably exists in that world, you know? So, I mean, it's like there are werewolves and there's vampires and, uh, you know, anything else you could probably think of. Uh, but I always liked that idea of a milieu where, you know, you actually have all these different possibilities instead of just like, oh, only vampires are real. And that's the only difference between, you know, the real world and, and the world of, that the novel is set in. Well, you know, like Laurel K. Hamilton has this, has her Anita Blake Vampire mm-hmm. Hunter series where there's, there's like vampires and werewolves and stuff. And, and, you know, like we were talking about earlier, how, I mean, I just don't believe that there are vampires or werewolves in our world mm-hmm. and we don't know about them or there's not conclusive proof of them by now. But in that world, it's it's a world where vampires and werewolves are, are known to exist. And, uh, you know, they have to write laws to, to deal with it and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Although um, in one of the Laurel K. Hamilton books, like book four or five, I think, um, she introduces fairies into that world. And she later said that she regretted that, that they just didn't really fit into that milieu. And so she kind of <laughs> didn't mention them again after that. Okay, well, I wanted to mention my favorite werewolf story that I've read. Uh, it's by Susan Palwick, and it's called Justella, and it appeared in Starlight, the Starlight 3 anthology. And this is just such a good story. Um, so in this story, it's not your standard werewolf thing. There's a, a young Russian woman, and in this story, uh, she doesn't turn into like a wolf-human hybrid. She just turns into a, a, a wolf, like a, a Russian wolfhound kind of dog. And uh, so she meets an American tourist and, uh, and falls in love with him, and, and they get married. And uh, he's uh, he's a little bit older than her to start out. She, he's you know he's like in his early thirties or something, and, and she's nineteen. But he you know he like knows that she turns into or he discovers you know that she turns into a a dog, and he's cool with that. Um, and she she kind of tries to explain to him the the thing about dog ears when they first meet, and he's not really listening, and she kind of lets it slide. But basically, she because she turns into a, a dog, she kind of ages more in dog years than in human years. So she ages a lot faster. And so, you know, when they first get married, you know, he's 10 years older or whatever. But then she ages much faster than, than he does. And so he gets more and more dissatisfied with his wife, who's just getting older and older. And you can maybe see where this is going. But the, uh, the ending is just so powerful and so creepy. Uh, some of my favorites are by George R. R. Martin. Uh, like he has a big novella called The Skin Trade that I really like, um, sort of a detective story uh, dealing with werewolves. Um, but then he also has one that's sort of a non-traditional werewolf story, but it's called uh, In the Lost Lands. And that one's more of a sort of a fantasy story dealing with the werewolf um, trope. But um, I'm actually I'm going to reprint it in my Way of the Wizard anthology. Uh, so it's sort of a wizard story with werewolves. But uh, while on the subject, actually, of, of, of werewolf short stories, I wanted to mention, too, that uh, Ekaterina Sedia is uh, editing an anthology called Running with the Pack, um, which is coming out sometime this year. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of mixes reprints and originals. And uh, I'm sure it uh, it might actually reprint the Martin as well. I'm not sure. But uh, I'm sure it's going to have, uh, you know, a bunch of the great classics there. And uh, maybe maybe the Susan Pelwick story you just mentioned. Mm. And actually, you know, I'm pretty sure Carrie has a story in that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I believe she does. Okay, so, um, you know, you recently edited this vampire anthology called By Blood We Live, 
Right. Um, and that's, you know, a big chunk of vampire stuff that I've read recently was all in that book. So I wanted to talk about some of the, the stories in there. Um, okay. It, you know, so it starts out with this, this Neil Gaiman story I've always really loved called mm-hmm. Snow Glass Apples, uh, which is a, a really un-Disney retelling <laughs> of the Snow White fairy tale. Yeah. Um, you know, in the fairy tale, Snow White is described as having skin as white as snow and lips as red as blood. And so once it's pointed out that, okay, obviously mm. she's a vampire, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Right. And so, um, so like in, in Snow White, you know, the huntsman is supposed to uh, chop out Snow White's heart and bring it back to the queen to show that she's dead. And so in this mm-hmm. version, he actually does. But that that doesn't even stop Snow White. <laughs> And so this is actually, it's told from the point of view of the, the queen. And uh, so it, it's sort of like, like Wicked. It's sort of her point of view and, and casts her in a much more sympathetic light. And it's just really creepy and, and really, really demented, actually. Oh, yeah. I mean, that story is just so amazing. Like, when I first read that, it was like, I was so blown away by it that I was like, there was no question I was going to use. It was no question about me using that in the anthology, you know. But uh, one of my other favorites from the book, actually, is uh, Joe Hill's Abraham's Boys. And then, you know, that story, uh, it's sort of, it's told from the point of view of uh, Abraham Van Helsing's uh, sons. You know, I also, uh, I went to this short film festival in New York, uh, the Shock Lines Film Festival, and they actually, uh, there was a short film made of Abraham's Boys that was really good. It's, it's definitely worth trying to hunt down if you can find it. And I mean, actually, many of the other short films uh, that they screened there were, were great, too, but uh, that's sort of off topic. Well, I think I think we ought to mention Treevenge. Uh, oh well, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, it's totally off topic, but uh, you know, unfortunately, Abraham's Boys doesn't seem to be online, but Treevenge at least was online. I hope it still yeah, is. But it's, it's that's true. It's uh, you know, Christmas trees take revenge on humanity for being mm-hmm. chopped down and <laughs> dressed up in lights and stuff. And oh, it's just so it's so gory and so funny. Yeah. Uh, so it's like glory. It's like gloriously <laughs> violent, as, as I like to put it. And actually, uh, Joe Hill's other story that was adapted, uh, Pop oh, Art, yeah. was, uh, that was quite a, a good short film as well. Yeah. Uh, but getting back to vampires, uh, you know, you, you were talking about um, Space Vampire, the, the Choose Your Own Adventure book you read. I mean, there's actually there's a couple Space Vampire stories in the anthology, too. Um, like the, the Wide Carnivorous Sky by John Langan and um, uh, Infestation by Garth Nix are both Space Vampire stories. I mean, I, I'm like a big fan of John Langan's work. and I mean, like he was in Wasteland and in, and in The Living Dead. And and I read his novel too, like before it was even published, and I was a big fan of that. It's called House of Windows. It just it came out recently from Nightshade. Uh, but uh, the Wide Carnivorous Sky, I really think is like that's like the best thing he's ever written. I mean, really, even if uh, even if you're gonna um, just borrow it from the library or whatever, and not like give me any royalties, <laughs> I really I really encourage everyone to go read that story because it's just it's really amazing. Yeah. So this I I really enjoyed this too. It's um, and I guess you got the you know the, the the title. It's a great title, and I guess the title came first and. You know, once that title had occurred to him, he had to, he's like, oh, I have to use that. I have to come <laughs> up with a story to go with this title. Right. Um, but it's these, you know, American soldiers, um, I think in Afghanistan, and they kind of have a run in with a uh, sort of vampiric type creature that kind of swoops down out of the sky and then returns. It's it's sort of, um, there's some sort of satellite up in the sky that it keeps returning to and, and coming down again to feed. Some of the other uh, stories in the book uh, that I that I thought were particularly interesting uh, to note in, in in that they sort of 
treat the vampire in a very untraditional light. Like Child of an Ancient City by Tad Williams was another mm. like sort of slam dunk story. Like, oh, I knew I was going to use that as soon as I read it, even though it was like a big, uh, long story, like 16,000 words, uh, which is always hard to fit into an anthology. But it, it sort of takes the vampire out of the Christian mythos and, and, and puts it in into the Muslim context. And so it's, you know, it sort of takes place in Iraq and the like, I'm not sure what year it is, but it's, you know, sort of a long time ago. And, uh, you know, there's people in a caravan that are telling stories to each other. And, uh, and they have to sort of tell stories to the vampire in order to keep him from, you know, devouring them. So it sort of uh, uh, incorporates all these elements of, of, of uh, Arabian Nights into uh, the vampire story. And uh, it just works really, really well. And it's really creepy. Yeah, so it's sort of a Scheherazade situation where right, exactly. the, the vampire was going to eat them, but he gets interested in the stories and wants to hear how the stories turn out. So they have to keep stringing the story along. Another one I really liked from the book was uh, by Barbara Hambly. It was called Sunrise on Running Water. Mm. And this is about a vampire who uh, you know, he wants to get from Europe to America. So he books a uh, passage on the Titanic because you know it's an unsinkable ship. So what can go <laughs> wrong? Um, but of course, if you're a vampire, you... Uh, can't deal with running water which is basically the entire ocean mm-hmm. and uh the sun's going to come up sooner or later and so you know this vampire is just in this really uh horrible situation the christian faith has always been very closely tied to the vampire mythos um and so that's one of the reasons i thought uh, the tad williams story was so interesting but um two of the other stories in the book uh, sort of deal with that topic head-on as well like um uh, Michael Burstein's story called Lifeblood, uh, it sort of takes the, it, it makes it into a Jewish vampire story. And like, you know, there's sort of the question, you know, can a Jew actually become a vampire? And I thought it was a pretty interesting uh, treatment. And and then also Harry Turtledove has a story called Under St. Peter's, which is, uh, which actually is Christian, but um, it's just like so blasphemous that, uh, you know, it's like, it's just worthy of note because it's like, uh, <laughs> it's not for the, not for the, um, churchgoer probably but uh anybody who likes a good blasphemous story uh, that one's definitely for you oh i wanted to also point out actually uh a couple stories uh or at least one story that's not in the book but uh you know i used a story by bruce McAllister called hit which i quite like um and then um fnsf actually just published a new story by him that's also uh, a vampire story it's actually pretty it's kind of reminiscent of uh, the harry turtle story but it's uh quite good and worth checking out yeah so uh so bruce McAllister's story in fnsf is called uh, blue fire it's in the most recent issue in the March, April 2010 issue. You know, I mean, I highly recommend you go check that out, too. If, uh, you know, if, if you've read By Blood We Live and you still have a uh, hunger for more vampire stories. Then, uh, or thirst. Yeah. yeah, thirst. And that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. If you'd like to share your thoughts about any of the topics we discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. Just go to Tor.com and click on podcasts and then Geek's Guide to the Galaxy Episode 9 and post a comment there. And be sure to join us next week when we'll interview Tom Rogers, author of the book Insultingly Stupid Movie Physics. See you then. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarrcurrently.com. Music and voiceover produced by Deadspill 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.